For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. The general election takes place in only about a week and a half, although thousands of Oklahomans have already been mailing in their ballots. Not only are we voting on president, we are also looking at two state questions, a U.S. Senate seat and races in all five congressional districts, as well as many races for the state House and Senate. Ryan, it looks like the presidential race is probably a foregone conclusion since Oklahoma hasn't voted for a Democrat since 1964. Are there other races you're kind of looking at right now? Well, and, and on the presidential race, even yeah. though it is a foregone conclusion that we're, you know, the Oklahoma seven electoral votes were almost certainly go for President Trump. Um, it will be really interesting to see how Vice President Biden performs at Oklahoma County, Tulsa County, Cleveland County, Comanche right. County. I mean, that's that's going to be a real bellwether, I think, for the future of Oklahoma's political landscape. So <clears throat> understanding how the Vice president does there will will you know certainly be interesting and important. Um, you know, state legislative races. Uh, I'm looking at Senate District 35, Cheryl Baber uh, versus Joanna Dossett. That's an open seat to replace Senator Stanislavski, and you know that's a a seat that has numbers you know similar to the the race that Senator Kerry Hicks won in Oklahoma County, where you had a Democrat take a Republican seat, and I think that you know this could be a pickup for Democrats. The the fundraising advantage there does seem to be <clears throat> in favor of Cheryl Baber. But if you look, you know, of the hundred and over $190,000 that Cheryl Baber has uh, raised in the account in the, in the campaign, 150,000 of that appears to be a personal loan. Um, and so you have both candidates though, entering this final stretch with significant amount of money in the bank. Um, and you know, I think a, a lot of attention from both political parties, I, a seat where I think Democrats are looking to hang on is uh, the, the, uh, Senate District 37, also in the Tulsa area with Senator uh, Allison Eichley Freeman, trying to hold on to that seat. You know, that's the seat where there is a Republican registration advantage. She won that, I think, with you know 30-something votes uh, mm -hmm. in the context of the teacher walkout. And so this is going to be a, a real bellwether case as well uh, for Democrats, whether or not they can hold on to that seat. I, you know, Senator Eichley Freeman has done an outstanding job in the legislature of you know, building relationships in that district. So she's going to be a really tough incumbent to beat. But registration is going to be tough for her you know, walking into Election Day. Neva. I would agree that both of those Senate seats are definitely top on the radar to watch for not only the reasons that Ryan has talked about, but the fact that uh, in the in the instance with Senator Eichley Freeman, uh, you have Cody Rogers, who came through a very hard fought primary and runoff uh, against a well-funded uh, opponent in the in the runoff, uh, someone who uh, by some description would be considered more uh, ultra right, uh, perhaps in party persuasion, you know, among Republicans, but nevertheless, it is a Republican seat and it is one that's been, uh, hotly contested as, as is the case with the Stanislavski seat. And I do think that, uh, it will be fascinating to see that one come down to the wire. Uh, the other ones that I, I, I'm looking at are two in particular in the house where I think Republicans uh, could have pickups. And that is uh, house 46, the Jacob Rosecrantz, uh, a race with uh, Nancy Saran, uh, Sandirati, 
And she ran two years ago, lost in a primary, continued to run. It's basically uh, um, the Norman seat has largely been a Republican seat for years and years. Rosecrans picked it up, has held it. So that one's going to be a battle, as will be House 93, where Representative Mickey Dollins is facing a very formidable challenge by former state rep Mike Christian. Uh, Christian was in the House from 2008 to 2016, ran for sheriff, uh, uh, and uh, was unsuccessful. Dollins uh, in a in a district that uh, many would say is more Democrat, but nonetheless, uh, it appears that uh, Christian is is very much in the hunt, and this could be another pickup for Republicans. Ryan, very quickly, do you see any kind of a shift where uh, Democrats have a super minority, as it were? Do you think there's any chance of them maybe? whittling away at that? Yeah, I think that Joanna Dossett could pick up this in a District 35 race up in, in Tulsa County. And, you know, that's the one where I was just, you know, talking about Cheryl Baber and the $150,000 loan. You know, I think that that's a very competitive seat. And that's where we're seeing that Democrats are beginning to make more and more gains in metropolitan areas. That's a pickup there. Maybe one of the most consequential pickups for Democrats this upcoming election cycle wouldn't be in the state legislature, would be at a county commission level. And that's the race between Spencer Hicks and Brian Mon. If Spencer Hicks wins that race, um, you know, you immediately change the dynamic on the Oklahoma County Commissioner's uh, makeup from, you know, two two votes uh, on the conservative side to two votes on the Democratic side. Uh, I mean, that's a that would be an enormous shift for Democrats in the state of Oklahoma, not just in Oklahoma County. In Congressional District 5, the Oklahoma City Fraternal Order of Police endorses State Senator Stephanie Bice, saying she doesn't support defunding the police. Of course, Congresswoman Kendra Horn has said she also doesn't support defunding police. But, Neva, how big of a deal is the endorsement from the police union? I think it's very significant, and I think it uh, speaks volumes to uh, kind of the political climate when we look at uh, how the voters are reacting in terms of when polling is taking place, talking about uh, uh, even in the sheriff's race where you look at uh, the the aspect of standing with officers versus defunding police. I mean, it's a it, there's a real divide there. It's a it's a real political divide. It's a very partisan divide. It, it would appear, but I think in this instance, it's a huge endorsement for uh, uh, Stephanie Bice. And I think uh, when you look at it from the perspective of Congresswoman Horn, uh, it, she was uh, she was at the George Floyd protest in Oklahoma City. Uh, uh, she uh, certainly has kind of been on both sides in terms of how she has uh, kind of positioned herself with these law enforcement issues. But um, you have to chalk it up as a as a big plus. And I think it does reflect also talking about these other races a moment ago. When we talk about down ballot races, what appears to be happening in a lot of the polls I've seen is that the lower ballot races are actually uh, performing much better than at the top of the ticket with some with some Republicans. I think we're seeing that with uh, uh, in the Oklahoma County Sheriff's race, where recent polls showed a significant uh, advantage to the Republican in this uh, in this open in this open seat. So um, I, th- I think it is going to be fascinating to see the uh, the top of the t- ticket numbers with uh, both the Senate race and the presidential race, and then how that corresponds on down the uh, ballot in terms of percentages. Ryan. Well, yeah, I think that it's it's a, just a matter, it, that this endorsement is just really just a matter of course. Uh, the, the FOP, both at the state level, local level, and national level, have really become nothing more than a proxy for the Republican Party and Republican candidates. I think that, um, you know, the idea that they would endorse 
someone is just simply a recognition that they're endorsing a Republican candidate. And I think that that's unfortunate. If you look at uh, Kendra Horn's message around law enforcement, you know, she has uh, it, basically with FOP, if you want their endorsement, one, you've got to be a Republican. And two, you have to you know, basically say that you know, cops never do anything bad ever. And, you know, the idea of increased accountability is an anathema to them. But if you look at Kendra Horn's, Congresswoman Horn's position on this, you know, she's got a very nuanced and thoughtful view here. She, on one hand, recognizes the incredibly difficult job that men and women in law enforcement face every single day. And she also understands that communities of color have a very real fear, uh, in particular communities of color, have a very real fear of, of law enforcement and you know, what it means to call law enforcement to come and protect and serve you. Uh, they often don't show up and protect and serve. Uh, and that, that perception, I think, has created a, a real uh, danger for communities of color. So she recognizes both of those things. She is entirely not for defunding the police. I mean, the, the attack, that line of attack on her just really falls flat whenever you confront it with the facts. I think that it's, in terms of the FOP, I think that they've really missed an opportunity um, in, the, in the last six months uh, to position themselves as thoughtful leaders on police reform. They should be at the forefront of this, and they should really be siding with folks like Kendra Horn, um, because the thing that puts them in the greatest danger are terrible sentencing policies, uh, terrible um, emphasis and priorities in policing uh, that put them in danger. And the, the biggest thing that puts them puts law enforcement in danger are the enormous number of firearms that are in circulation uh, in our country and in our state. Democratic U.S. Senate candidate Abby Broyles outraised her opponent, Republican incumbent Jim Inhofe, in the third quarter. From July 1st through September 30th, Broyles' campaign raised more than $911,000 compared to fewer than $877,000 for Inhofe. Ryan, does this show momentum for Broyles, and is it too late? I don't think it's too late. I think that the um, I think that we have seen a, a record number of absentee ballots uh, that have been requested. We can assume that we're seeing a record number, record number of absentee ballots being cast. You know, so, so some of the mold is already set for this election, but we also recognize that a lot of those absentee ballots are, are most likely to break in favor of Democrats like Abby Broyles. So uh, the, the people that she has to campaign and get their votes between now and election day, I think a lot of those votes are still up for grabs. Uh, the amount of money that she's raised in this campaign is is unprecedented. I think that it again it sets the stage for not just this election cycle, but I think a lot of possibility for what Democrats can accomplish at the statewide level and in congressional districts moving forward in Oklahoma. Neva. Well, I think uh, you always try to posture and put the best face on uh, uh, fundraising. And clearly the Broyles campaign has tried to do this. But the numbers, when you look at them, I mean, bottom line, uh, the Inhofe campaign has raised $5.3 million uh, during, this, uh, during this campaign cycle. Uh, the Broyles campaign, $1.6 million. The more interesting uh, figures, if you really delve into uh, those releases, was the fact that I believe that uh, in, in the instance of uh, Abby Broyles, they had uh, slightly more than a quarter of a million dollars cash on hand in the campaign account. Jim Inhofe still had 1.7 million on hand. So the the uh, fun, the d- just the disparity in terms of the resources now in the closing stretch. And I think by all accounts, uh, all polls indicate that uh, 
uh, Inhofe will win. Uh, the percentage may be, could be slightly lower than perhaps uh, the uh, uh, past elections, but nevertheless, it will be a uh, overwhelming win. And I think when you watch the reports and the information coming out of Washington, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, this particular race is not on the radar with the Democrat National Senatorial Committee as something that is either competitive or something that they're paying a lot of attention to. So I think uh, it's the valiant fight against, uh, you know, a very uh, strong, uh, incumbent. And I think uh, in this instance, uh, um, Abby Broyles has done what she can to raise what she can and, and try to compete. But I believe Jim Anhoff once again will be reelected by at least the information and the polls and the tracking that we're seeing right now uh, on November 3rd. Ryan, if Broyles does uh, maybe shorten the gap than he's had in the past, which he's won sometimes upwards of 70 percent of the vote, uh, if he she shortens that, is that uh, a sign of maybe where she might be able to go politically or, or, or a boost to a, a future political career? Yeah, I think, you know, whether whether this campaign ends up with her uh, dealing one of the, the biggest upsets uh, on election night uh, in the nation in 2020, which Oklahoma is no stranger to, to being home to the biggest upsets on election night. Kendra Horn beating former Congressman Steve Russell two years ago on election night was one of the biggest upsets, if not the biggest upset of 2018. 2020, Abby Broyles could, could ha have that title for herself. But even if she doesn't, I think that she has demonstrated that she has uh, the ability to put together a strong professional campaign, raise the kind of money that it takes to be competitive at a statewide level, and she's not going anywhere soon. I think that uh, we, we, you know, regardless of what happens on election night, whether we're talking about a Senator Broyles or a former Senate candidate Broyles, uh, she's going to be on the political landscape in Oklahoma for a long time to come. I think when you have a U.S. Senate race and you and you have a race in any state and you do not have a debate of any type between the two candidates uh, in the general election, I think it speaks volumes to the fact that it is not a it is simply not viewed as a competitive race at, at this point in time. Everything is possible in upsets, but when we start looking at at polling, I think, uh, as you expressed earlier, Ryan, uh, we have some counties, the larger metropolitan counties, that clearly are much more competitive uh, in the presidential race with much, much smaller margins. Uh, uh, but in all instances that I've seen, still with the president leading, um, in, in some cases, maybe single digits rather than double digits. But when you look at the total political landscape for Oklahoma, it looks like it uh, still trends toward a very good night for Republicans uh, in this general election. The Oklahoma Healthcare Authority moves forward with Governor Stitt's plan to privatize Medicaid. The agency released two requests for proposals to have four profit companies bid to oversee medical and dental spending for a majority of the state's nearly a million Medicaid recipients. Neva, we talked last week about how not even Stitt's own party is necessarily in support of this. So why move forward? Well, I think what the governor is doing is he's moving aggressively forward uh, with the actions being taken uh, as executive actions in advance of even the legislature coming back into session. And it will be interesting to see these RFPs, uh, I believe, will be uh, due sometime early January, February. So that will that will definitely change the dialogue and the discussion. And 
uh, the question is, can and can and will the governor and his team uh, put the political capital behind it to begin to lobby, particularly re- Republican lawmakers, uh, to uh, try to get on board, try to get on board with this managed care model? And as as we've talked about, there's been resistance to that across the board, uh, but uh, but it's certainly something that the governor appears to be. Uh, at least showing some signs that he's willing to weigh in with some political muscle on this. And it'll be one of the more probably fascinating uh, uh, debates and, and contests as we get into the session. Ryan. Well, yeah, I think that the governor wants to, uh, he, he wants to, to frame this narrative around what privatization looks like, because there isn't just a privatization or not privatization option. I mean, the the whole concept of privatization or managed care is one of the most enormously complex policy issues that lawmakers in any state can deal with. And, and they're all highly consequential. I mean, they can have uh, big impacts on the rates that providers, the doctors, hospitals, uh, primary caregivers, whatever that looks like, what they receive from Medicaid, how much they receive, when they receive it, what services are covered, what aren't. Um, and and so for and this for the people that, that receive that healthcare, big consequences. But there are you know for for every state that has moved towards a managed care option, every state has some different variety on that, some different variation on that. Uh, so rather than inviting the legislature to the table to talk about what would privatization or managed care look like in Oklahoma, the governor is going to have these RFPs that are going to come out right before the legislative session begins, and that. The governor, I think, I believe, will hope drive the debate around you know what kind of options the state of Oklahoma could have here. I think a smarter uh, 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 process here by the governor uh, would be to bring lawmakers in to help craft those RFPs to begin with, uh, so that they've they've got some skin in the game. But I mean, we'll see how it works. Uh, I think that at the end of the day the governor and everyone else here should be driven by evidence. And if you look at studies around managed care, there's just not a lot of evidence-based peer-reviewed studies that demonstrate savings or improved uh, access or quality of care. And that's really what should be driving the lawmakers here. Instead of you know trying to create policies that get to a political goal of, I want managed care, so I'm going to you know have this feedback loop that gets me to managed care. They should really be saying, you know, what kind of outcomes can we have for providers, and more importantly, for the people of Oklahoma that re- rely on healthcare through Medicaid. Neven, is now the time to be talking about privatization when we're looking at the the issues with Epic, which is again privatization of virtual charter schools. Well, obviously, that's a that, that's a question that may arise in some of the uh, the debate uh, and the conversation opposing privatization. But I think the bigger kind of looming issue that the overarching issue with privatizing Medicaid and and that whole discussion is going to be about the fact that we have a projected two hundred and fifty million to three hundred million budget hole as a result of Medicaid expansion that is definitely going to impact lawmakers when they start to craft a budget next year. And where does that where does that money come from? And you start talking about raising taxes when that conversation gets infused into the whole the whole discussion, everything changes. And it certainly changes when these legislators are back home in their districts, because I don't believe there's an appetite at all among Oklahomans at, by and large, to have uh, tax increases, particularly if it was tied to uh, the fact that uh, this was part of 
part of the need in the budget with this big budget hole that we talked about when voters were getting ready to decide whether they would pass Medicaid expansion. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there was a payday coming, there was a price tag attached to this. It's a big one. It will grow. And now now it's uh, incumbent upon the legislature to figure out a way to deal with it. And, you know, and even I may disagree over whether to characterize it as, as a budget hole. I, I see it as a, an investment with an enormous return on that investment by leveraging hundreds of if hundreds of millions, if not a billion, billion plus dollars of federal funds that will come into the state as a result of Medicaid expansion. But I, I do think it's one of the the biggest unforeseen challenges that lawmakers are going to have to deal with with Medicaid expansion are the large number of Oklahomans that as a result of the economy and the pandemic have been driven into Medicaid eligibility. And so we're going to, you know, we've got an increased, you know, we have an increased population as a result of Medicaid expansion, but we also have an increased population of Medicaid eligible folks as a result of the recession driven by the pandemic. So that's going to be a a big piece of the puzzle that lawmakers are going to have to figure out. Well, and when when we talk about these uh, these folks that are going to bid on these RFPs, I mean, this 400-page request uh, and all of the details in it, the companies will also be taking over uh, management of prescription drugs for most uh, Medicaid beneficiaries. So there, it's a it's a huge, all-encompassing proposition here, and uh, it will be interesting as people start to really delve into the details, even of these RFPs, how that may shift the, the overall discussion. The Oklahoma County Jail Trust fails once again to remove agents with Immigrations and Customs Enforcement from the facility. Well, just like last month, the vote was approved four votes to two, but also like last month, the prohibition failed because five votes are needed for passage. Ryan, what's next for the trust? Well, what's next seems to be a, uh, a resol- there needs to be some sort of resolution in Oklahoma County District Court at this point over a lawsuit filed by County Commissioner and Jail Trust member uh, Kevin Calvey, who is a- asking an Oklahoma County District Court judge to weigh in on whether or not uh, the state has a-, a legal obligation to um, allow ICE agents to sit in the Oklahoma County Jail to process detainers. And you know, maybe just a, a quick you know, primer on, on what that means for folks. If you have someone that's arrested and then they're ready to be discharged from the Oklahoma County Jail as a result of bail or charges were dropped or whatever that may be, they're on release day. Um, they process, these, these ICE agents process a, a person's name through an immigration database, which is just riddled with problems. Uh, and try to determine whether or not there's a citizenship issue or, or a lawful presence issue. And if there is, they put a detainer on that person uh, before, so that they aren't released from criminal custody by the, by the county or the city and they are held so that ICE agents can come pick them up at some point and put them in immigration uh, detention. That's, there are an, an, a whole range of legal issues there uh, about whether or not that's constitutional, whether or not probable cause exists there, whether there's liability for the county. And then there's the, the policy consideration, the political consideration of whether or not we should be entangling law enforcement with immigration enforcement and, and the, the, the whole host of problems that are created from that. I think that, uh, you know, now you've got the district attorney, David Prater, who's weighed in and said that, you know, he's the one who has jurisdiction to represent the county in these matters, not an individual county commissioner acting in his individual capacity. Um, So you've got jurisdictional issues, you've got federal issues, you've got constitutional issues. And oddly enough, you have Commissioner Kevin Calvey on the side of saying we need to comply with federal law 
whenever uh, he's normally the Tenth Amendment guy saying states' rights, the federal government can't tell us what to do. Uh, but now it's it's convenient for him because it, it fits a political agenda around the issue of immigration. So that's where we're at, and I we're probably a, a ways away from uh, from ultimate resolution. Any here. kind of a resolution there, Neva? What uh, what do you think? And also, of course, we the two of them I think said that they would have vote would have voted in favor, but they were awaiting this judge's decision. Uh, that's right. I think uh, 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 Jim Couch, the former city mm-hmm. manager, and uh, uh, M.T. Barry, who's the former assistant city manager, they both had voted uh, previously in favor of prohibiting the ICE officers back in September. Then they indicated at this meeting that they would abstain because they wanted to wait for the matter to be cleared by the courts. So uh, perhaps if we get the the uh, uh, this uh, uh, the court's determination and another vote is taken, it would uh, seem to indicate uh, that uh, we would see some final resolution on on this whole matter. That's give and take back and forth coming up uh, with not enough votes uh, to be definitive one way or the other is really, I mean, it's, it's, it's impeding, I think, bigger conversations that I'm sure the jail trust uh, needs to, uh, to get on very quickly. So hopefully we'll see, uh, see this matter resolved in just a few weeks. And speaking of just a few weeks, as we talked about last week and we mentioned earlier in the show, it also could come down to a vote in Congress in, in District 2 of Oklahoma County. Yeah, if, if Spencer Hicks wins that election for a county commissioner against Brian Mon, uh, all of a sudden you have Kerry Bloomer, Commissioner Kerry Bloomer, with a new ally on, on the uh, county com- Oklahoma County Commission. And it'll be two votes against Commissioner Calvi's one vote. <clears throat> so that could moot this whole thing. Um, you know, of course, you have to have time between the election and, and the, the seating of a, of a new right. commissioner. Yes, but <laughs> but still, I mean, it, it could be it could be mooted by the election process. That's why I say that, uh, you know, that race between Brian Mon and Spencer Hicks for the Oklahoma County Commission uh, is maybe one of the most consequential, if not the most consequential election in the state of Oklahoma or candidate driven election mm-hmm. in the state of Oklahoma because of its ability to just instantaneously swing uh, the the political um, majority in, in a body with just one, one, one vote. And I think when we look at that race, uh, based on what we've already talked about in terms of what's happening in other races down ballot, even in Oklahoma County, where, uh, where we have Trump Biden in, in, in a spread of maybe just a few percentage points uh, right now, we do see as we get further down the ballot that Republicans are faring very well. Brian Mon is uh, uh, the incumbent uh, Republican uh, office holder has has certainly better name ID, better positioned uh, in a, in a race like this coming into the closing stretch. So uh, it is uh, it, it certainly gives I think you would have to say more advantage to the incumbent in this instance as we see in most courthouse races. Quite frankly, when we look at them, um, uh, incumbents tend to uh, fare very well unless they become embattled on a particular issue. In this instance, this campaign, the county commissioner's race, has been fairly lackluster. We've seen not that much activity overall, I think, uh, in the race. So it, it very well may come down to how straight party voting and how uh, Republicans and Democrats see these candidates if they've had a, a real individualized look at the race uh, as opposed to just voting party line. Ryan and Neva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.